I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Mike Boris, and this is Straight Talk. When I found out I was interviewing Australia's leading book author, Matt Riley, For Straight Talk, I've got to tell you, I've never seen my production crew so excited. Matt Riley wrote his first of now 19 novels contest at 19 while studying law at university. Now, how he came to be represented by Pam McMillan after putting out that novel himself is now the staff of publishing legend. To give you a sense of what this guy's books are inspired by, he owns a DeLorean, Back to the Future car, a life-size hand solo in carbonite, and countless other pieces of Star Wars memorabilia and collectibles. Matt has been living in Los Angeles for the better part of a decade, now pursuing film options for his books and other stories. But he has indeed, in his own words, transcended nerdom and pushed his way through the cutthroat world of Hollywood. Because after holding on to a lifelong dream to direct a film, and after many false starts, his first feature film, Interceptor, starring Elsa Pataki, backed by Netflix, is set to be released in early 2022. It's so cool to see an Aussie living out his dream with some major industry names jumping on board. But of course, it hasn't all been smooth sailing, as usual. Matt has had to move through some pretty tough challenges in his life, but this creative output has never, ever wavered. It's time for No Bullshit with Matt Riley. Matt Riley, welcome to Straight Talk, mate. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, where are you now, right now? Which part of the world are you right now? I'm in Los Angeles. I'm in the little office. Uh, I have a little cottage attached to my house, which is filled with all of my movie paraphernalia and my books. So I'm in LA. I'd love to have a look around that room. I just would love to have a look around that room. I hear you got some cool stuff. Someone told me that you've got a DeLorean car. Like, is that the, is that I real? do. I do. Serious? Uh, it, it's actually in Canberra in my friend's garage. I uh, I foolishly got it converted to actually it wasn't foolish I got it converted to right hand drive, uh, and then I had it for years and then I moved to America so I my buddy in Canberra is trying to put an electric engine in it which is awesome, wow, and yeah you know I've got stuff behind me like little Die Hard Tower and Guardians of the Galaxy and the time I was at Comic Con you know it's uh, movie posters all around here you got to inspire yourself. Are you living the dream? I mean, do you reckon you're living your dream now? You look like you are, just this the way you're coming across. Yeah. Uh, you know, I. this is sort of what I hoped for. I I, I write my books and this year I've now directed a, a movie. Uh, I'm surrounded by creativity uh, and literally just in the last couple of days I got back to work on a new book. So I still enjoy writing the books and yet this year has just been a uh, – a roller coaster ride with the movie Interceptor. So yeah, I feel I feel I'm living the dream. Yeah, and, and I mean I have to be honest here, like uh, all the um, production crew around here, uh, you know, one guy got a boner when knowing that you were going to come on. Like it's pretty serious <laughs> shit. Like uh, they're all really excited. Uh, you know, like he started telling me a little bit about uh, your Netflix show, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Uh, Interceptor. He sort of started telling me, he just couldn't keep the smile off his face face like he was mental he was really smiling he was exploding but at the same time restraining from letting me see how much he was exploding about explaining what you're doing so okay let's just talk a little bit about you because it's it's i don't know if it's normal is it um that australian authors like you um end up in hollywood effectively we are now you're not in hollywood you're in la but you're probably close to hollywood 
and uh, as you say, living the dream, but uh, getting accepted by all the studios over there to produce or, or rather direct a series or a show or a movie. Yeah, directing I mean, a feature film, yeah. As Denzel Washington recently said, though, he said Hollywood is a street. Uh, Los Angeles is the movie town. Um, it is unusual, and in fact, it's been unusual since my first couple of books, Contest and Ice Station. I remember when Ice Station came out in 1998, and one of the reviews said, this is unlike any modern Australian novel. And the reason is I write action. I write bonkers, out-of-control action stories. And Australian fiction, for whatever reason, has gone down a certain path. And here I came like a bulldozer out of nowhere, charging in with this. I mean, Contest was self-published, but iStation was was this, it was real quantum leap up from what I did in Contest. And iStation was just this out-of-control action story. And it was the book that catapulted me around the world. And it went to the US, the UK, and Germany very quickly. And I sold the movie rights to Paramount Pictures as soon as, what, 20, 2001. They never made it. Um, but I was knocking on the door of Hollywood 20 years ago and I've had a lot of false starts and Interceptor now is the first one to actually get made and it's the one where I'm directing. When you say iStation was out of control, I mean, that's what indicates to me your brain is uh, like uh, pinging. Uh, what do you what do you mean? What, uh, tell me what you mean by out of control. You mean uh, like so fanciful, hectic, and pace. Uh, my books. When I, again, when you start writing, you you look at the books you're reading and you say, you know, there's something more that I want. I can do better than that. And I was reading Michael Crichton and Tom Clancy, and a bit of Jeffrey Archer and John Grisham, and I loved the international stakes of Clancy, but it was too slow. But I love the pace of Crichton. Crichton's books had, you know, Jurassic Park, Rising Sun, The Great Train Robbery, even The Andromeda Strain were fast, fast, fast. And I thought, what if you wrote a book which had the geopolitics of Clancy and the pace of Crichton? And that's essentially what Ice Station is. And I made that pace relentless. So when I say out of control, I'm talking like a roller coaster on paper. And and that's, if people talk about a Matthew Riley story i hope that's what they think um is that in the language or in the imagination what what is it what is pace that's a good question it's in the language and the structure uh you know you jump you take your character you put them in a frying pan and they jump out of that frying pan into another frying pan and then there's another frying pan and another one and if you have a rolling sequence of dilemmas uh you 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 get pace and The reader always has to have a chance to figure it out. And so as things occur, you've layered in little clues earlier on. And so it should feel to the reader like the most natural progression, and yet it should be moving at bullet speed. And if I tell people you should know the flavor of a book from the first page. I can still remember the first page of John Grisham's The Firm which I think is is still his best book. And the first line is something like, you know, the managing partner of the firm looked at the CV of Mitch McDear and once again found nothing that he didn't like. You know, he was eager, he was hungry, he graduated first in his class. This is the first page of the book telling you about the hero and you've got this dark-suited guy in a law firm reading his CV and going, this is exactly the kind of kid I want. You're interested you know, what happens next? And, you know, first line of my book, Ice Station, is, you know, it had been three hours since they lost contact with the two divers. Boom. You're in Antarctica. Two divers. They've lost contact with them. What happens next? As long as the reader is asking what happens next, you've got pace. Is it about just making an assumption or a presumption? Is there a presumption that exists that the reader by definition, because they read novels, et cetera, and fiction, by definition have an imagination and that they can uh, ping off into various directions and tangents about what the hell is going on here. Like, for example, that John Grisham, the firm, that opening that opening salvo uh, about this particular individual who's dark suited going to join this law firm. 
Um, and by the way, I, I remember I, I was working in a law firm when that book came out and I was just yeah. a young fella and uh, I remember it quite well. And uh, and I, I my imagination went a bit wild because the firm I worked for had a lot of, um, I wouldn't say dodgy, but unusual characters um, <laughs> as clients. Yeah. And, uh, and and I always sort of imagined myself in that same position <laughs> when, when that book when I when I read that book. Um, so do you do you make a presumption that not as to the intellect, but as to the um, sort of plasticity of um, everyone's imagination? Yes, and I should say I did a law degree too. I did those interviews at law firms and worked for a very short time in a, a big city, Sydney law firm, Cause Chambers Westgarth. The, yes, the audience, this, this is a very interesting question. The audience that buys a book with the name Matthew Riley on it, now 23 years in, they know the story to expect, something fast and big and high stakes. What I pride myself on is keeping up with the audience. The audience that bought Ice Station back in 1998, now in 2021, has watched all manner of new movies. They've gone through this golden age of television. They are more sophisticated than they've ever been. Um, I, I tell people that my books are a little shorter than they used to be, but they've got more in them because the audience demands that. And so, yes, you are acknowledging that the audience is a sophisticated story participant. Um, I mean, since 1998, we've had what? The Lord of the Rings movies. The audience has seen giant battle scenes. You know, when remember those first Lord of the Rings battle scenes at Helm's Deep and Minas Tirith and, you know, hundreds of thousands of orcs laying siege. We'd never seen that sort of thing before. Likewise, we've now had Game of Thrones, 20-plus Marvel movies. And what I love about the Marvel movies, which I've definitely used in my Jack West Jr. series, the Seven Ancient Wonders books, the Marvel movies make you stay to the end of the credits because there's a little uptick at the end of a Marvel movie that tells you what might be happening. Remember the – spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Avengers Infinity War, if you're the three people who haven't, at the end of the credits, you've got Samuel L. Jackson standing on the street and he's got his beeper and it's got the Captain Marvel symbol on it before he fades to dust. That is what I call an uptick. You've just watched this great movie and then at the end of the credits, Marvel is saying to you, but wait, there's more. And I am writing, yes, for that audience. Absolutely. Yeah. So it that tells me that there's a. I mean, you do you you're doing a tremendous lot of research, um, just keeping pace with let's call it trends. Um, yeah. I mean, sometimes I get into speeches, and um, I'm always about trying to understand my audience before I get them to talk because there's no point me mm. talking to talking to them today what I talked to them about ten years ago. Yes. Um, and so, but you're you're doing this on on scale. Like I mean, yours is massive scale. How the hell did you got a team behind you who's keeping up coming and saying, "Hey, Matt, we know we've been reading this or watching that." Nope. No. Uh, I think I'll be getting into that with Netflix in the coming months because they do do that. Uh, right. My, my market research is a book signing. You go and do a book signing at a shopping mall in Canberra where you get a line of feet people waiting two hours to, to get their book signed. You see men and women. Most of my readers, I would say, are over 20. You do get teenagers, but there's not a lot. I'd say more than 50% of women because women read more than men. And a lot of people who don't read Matthew Riley books go, oh, they're boys' books, you know, they're lots of, you know, guns and ammo. But the female characters have always been strong, not just the Marines from the Ice Station Scarecrow series or the women in the Jack West series, but books like The Tournament about a young Queen Elizabeth when she was Princess Bess travelling to a chess tournament. Um, in terms of a team, this this is my team, me sitting here in my office. Um, but what I think we'll find out – well, sorry, let me, let me rephrase. You asked about, you know, how do I discover the trends? Who do I talk to? For Interceptor, I spoke with my good friend Stuart Beatty, who's possibly the most successful Australian filmmaker that Australia hasn't heard about. He wrote the first parts of the Caribbean and the Tom Cruise movie Collateral. 
he was my co-writer and uh, producer on Interceptor. And we talked about Interceptor because my first draft, I got into the action super fast. The story begins, these bad guys steal 16 Russian missiles and they're going to fire them at America and our heroine has to shoot them down from Interceptor base. And Stu said to me, Matt, Matt, this was before Netflix came on board. He said, when somebody buys their ticket, they're going to give you 10 minutes to settle into the movie because they're sitting in the cinema, they've bought their popcorn, they're not going anywhere. Netflix comes along, wants to make the movie. Uh, We shot the movie, we cut the movie. I kept it fast anyway. Netflix know that when you're watching at home, people do turn off the movie in the first 10 minutes. The first 10 minutes of a Netflix movie has to grab you by the throat, like the first page of a novel, because people at home can turn it off. And and Stu, to his credit, said to me recently, he said, yeah, you know, you were right. We, the, the movies have changed. You can't, you don't have 10 minutes. You have two minutes to grab them. Otherwise, they'll go off and watch something else. Yeah. That's interesting. That's sort of my behaviour, to be frank with you, um, I'm on Netflix. Um, and I've got so you know, when, when you go on and you see all the various lines that it says continue watching, I've got so many continue watchings after about three, four minutes. Yep. I just, oh, forget it. Yep. It's not my go or it hasn't got me in. And whereas the ones that get me in the beginning, I do watch to the end, generally generally speaking. So did you I'm write yeah. that, that that your last book, I don't know if it's your last book, but The Interceptor for Netflix in particular? I mean, was no. that your goal? No. no. So Interceptor... Uh, To give you the full uh, frame of reference for Interceptor, Interceptor was an original screenplay that I wrote. My books weren't getting made because they cost $100 million to make and I wanted to direct. So I wrote Interceptor. It's got these massive high stakes, bad guys firing 16 stolen nukes at America. Um, But most of the action takes place at this Interceptor missile facility, which is based on a real facility. And it takes, this is real, it takes 24 minutes for a missile to fly from Russia to the United States, a nuclear missile. You have half that time, 12 minutes, to shoot it down. Uh, and so a heroine turns up for work on the worst day of her life and bad guys shoot, shoot everybody else and she barricades herself in the command centre. Now, in my movie, that takes place, in my original script, that took place on about page five. And we altered the script and it took place on about page seven or eight. Now in the movie, takes place about four minutes in, really, really fast. Now, to answer your question, no, when I first wrote Interceptor, the idea was to sell it to a studio or a mini studio and release it in cinemas. Uh, when Elsa Pataki read the script and got on board, uh, her husband is Chris Hemsworth and he did a deal with Netflix. Uh, Extraction was the first film for that. And so Netflix came into the picture uh, and, hey, I was a first-time director. I I would have made it for anybody. So, <laughs> you know, Netflix, Fox, Lionsgate, I didn't care. If someone was going to give me money to make it, Netflix, I didn't care. It's, pre- it's pretty exciting. Uh, I, I, I just was wondering as we were talking then um, about a young Matthew, um, like real young. I mean, when you're a kid – what were you like? 10, 11, 12. You're, you're yeah. born and bred in Canberra? Uh, Sydney, in Sydney. Sydney. In, uh, yep. So you're a Sydney guy. Yep. Um, you know, what was your deal? Like, uh, explain to me. I, I watched like The Empire Strikes Back every afternoon for three months before Return of the Jedi came out. I was fully into Star Wars. I had my action figures and my – I would build movie sets of Jabba the Hutt's palace – with Jabba the Hutt sitting there and Luke Skywalker in front of him, I had a little trap door in the little set that I built with a string on it and I'd pull the trap door open so Luke would drop through the trap door like he did in the movie. My parents, if they bought something which came in a box, they just gave me the box and I could, you know, keep myself amused all weekend, building little movie sets, building little spaceships, um, I loved it. I, I would watch the making of movies uh, and enjoy the the just the magic of it. You know, Return of the Jedi. You might remember the sail barge scene where you know Luke's made to walk the plank above this desert creature, and I remember seeing the set for that 
of the sail barge and behind it it was all wooden planks and struts like one of those old Wild West towns from a John Wayne movie. Uh, that's what I was like when I was 10. I remember when I was 12 I saw Aliens, which is probably not a good idea for parents to send a 12-year-old to watch Aliens. But when you say you saw the movie sets, how did you get access to that sort of stuff? Um, oh, no, I was watching making of specials. They're on television right. back then at like 10 o'clock at night, you'd see in the TV guide, back when there was a TV guide and four stations, it would say the making of Return of the Jedi or the making of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and I would just eat those things up. You must have been a dream kid because uh, you know, most kids are out um, stealing stuff from the shop or whatever when I grew up um, or down the road or trying to break open the one of those um, you know things that dispense cans of drink or chocolates and things like that. Um, but you, you're there sort of burrowing away in in, the, in some mm-hmm. back room of your, of your home. I can sort of imagine it. Yeah. Your imagination must be wild. I mean, your parents mm-hmm. must – did your parents encourage it? Like I was just trying yes. to think of – none of my boys were like – they have four sons. None of them were like that. And uh, um, I just wonder how I would have dealt with it um, if I had seen them sitting there in the corner and I thought, well, why aren't they going outside to play with the other kids or – or would I have gone, you know, that's cool. Go and keep doing it. My brother was a bit like that with Lego when I grew up as a kid. My brother yeah. would sit in the room for six hours playing Lego. I, I had no time mm-hmm. for it. But um, my parents were pretty cool with that. So what, what were your parents like uh, with you? I was probably a bit like that with the, the cardboard boxes uh, uh, and your brother with the Lego. Um, I, it, you know, full disclosure, I, I had an older brother, 18 months older. We would play – we'd go up to the park and play touch football with the other neighbourhood kids – at school, I was a good cricketer and a good soccer player, so I was in the school cricket team and the school soccer team. I had a good outlet for my energy, and I was a good student too. And I, I worked at it, and I've always worked at it. And I, I would study, and I, you know, once I got to high school, I did have, I went to a Jesuit boys' high school, St. Aloysius College, and I had other students say to me, "Why do you study? You know, why do you try so hard?" And I was like. When school's over, I'm not going to see you again. Why, why should I ever, you know, restrain myself and not do my best, you know? Why? Because I make you look bad? And so I studied and did my best. And uh, creatively, my parents, you know, my mother was still is a huge reader of fiction. Oh, there was always fiction lying around the house. Um, my my dad and my mum went in local amateur musicals and, and they took me. I still remember they took me to the opening. We saw Raiders of the Lost Ark at a movie cinema and we saw Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom on the first night. At the cinema? We went to opening night to see the second Indiana Jones movie and so you could definitely say my parents were encouraging me. We weren't, let's be, we weren't going to see Shakespeare in the park. We were going to see Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So real pop, pop culture fans, my parents. <laughs> I think a lot of people might label you, you know, you, they have this imagination. I have this imagination of you sitting there, you've got your um, laptop and you're, you're ripping in and you're just like digging in all day, all night, just typing away at a thousand miles an hour, massive pace, you know, your brain dumping stuff onto the, onto the screen. And you might have described you as a nerd. Um, but now that's why I sort of dug in a little bit into the weeds. Um, what were you like at school? You weren't a nerd. Um, you were just doing what everyone else did. You, probably tried a bit harder, perhaps, you know, studied, did your work at, at Allo's, which, by the way, my brother's kids went to. Uh-huh. You didn't lock yourself away, but you had this uh, itch, this sort of uh, imaginary creative itch. Yes. And, and you know, I've, I have transcended nerddom. Uh, I've, I've gone beyond that. Once you have a DeLorean and a hand solo in carbonite <laughs> and, you know, the idol from Raiders of the Lost Ark sitting beside behind you, um, you know, be be careful with the nerds because the nerds are the ones who end up earning millions of dollars and living the dream. Um, it's yeah. No, I I think um the funny thing about that you know my my time in high school yeah there was there was activity there was cricket and soccer and local touch football. It, it you know it's a hackneyed term but it was well rounded. Uh, yeah, and it, it it's. I mean, let's let's be honest. Uh, people ask me all the time, "How do you get into the movie business? How do you get a book published?" Everybody finds their own way. I self-published my first book because it got rejected by everybody. 
Um, it was a long shot of long shots, but that's how I got in. Other people know somebody. But, yeah, that, that time in high school is – it is pivotal. And I, I remember uh, – I did debating at high school. And I, I used to do speeches at schools. And I remember I'd, I'd ask students at schools, I'd say, put your hand up if you're doing debating. And, you know, feel that there's be a snickering, a wave of snickering go through the audience and a couple of kids put their hands up bravely, meekly. And I would say, okay, everybody, all those kids who put their hands up, they're starting the game of life 100 metres ahead of the rest of you because they will be able to speak in public. And I did a book tour early on in my career to England. I went on the Big Breakfast TV show. Four million people watching this show live. You want to be able to speak in public. And I always liked, always liked to think after I left those schools that enrolments in debating went up. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I copped grief as well for that. People say, why do you do debating? Yeah, well. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You just mentioned grief. Um, I, you know, I guess I'd like to just touch on this if you don't mind. Um, you did suffer some grief um, mm. many years ago, probably ten years ago, but to Was. this year, I'd say ten years ago. Yep. And uh, your at that time beloved wife um, uh, passed away. Um, how do you deal with grief when you're trying to keep your imagination alive and write books and write books that are you know going to be put in hopefully put into movie one day well i stopped i i did pause like i literally couldn't be bothered writing anything at that time i was overwhelmed with grief i cried every day for six months i i didn't write a word for a year um with grief well i guess you know following on from what i said before i I was suggested a few books to read about it and you learn that, that there are several excellent books on grief. One is called On Grief and Grieving. C.S. Lewis wrote A Grief Observed. And there's a masculine, there's one about men grieving. It's called something like Swallowed by a Snake. And it's how men specifically grieve. They, they look for projects and tasks and... Um, you know, in the end, I was lucky. I mean, I've been very well paid for what I do. And so I was able to step out of the world you know, financially for a year. Um, there was no pressure, of course, from my publishers to, to write anything. And the first thing that I did decide to write about a year later was The Great Zoo of China, which is quite possibly the most cartoonish of all of my books. It's Jurassic Park with dragons in China. Uh, and... It's pure escapism. I wasn't looking to write anything deep or overly complex. And that was sort of the, the trainer wheels book I needed to get back into it. Um, you know, we everybody has their struggles and things that they go through in life and, and that was certainly one of mine. And the thing that came out, still comes out, out of it for me to this day is it I was fortunate to have the life I had uh, with my my late wife and I also now don't sweat the small stuff you know um, I see people complain about things and I'm like yeah that's not really a big issue 
there are there are bigger things to complain about. I play golf. I see guys get angry on the golf course. Why? You know, it's not worth it. Um, and when I see people complain about things, I say, you know, the world can be a much harder place. And if anything, it's helped me with Hollywood too because Hollywood is a pretty ruthless environment and I just don't care. I said to somebody on my movie, I said, listen, just tell me how it is. You can't hurt my feelings. You can't offend me. And, you know, there's nothing on a movie set. It's a high-pressure environment. You're moving quickly. You're making big decisions, yes. But nothing is bigger than life. Life is the only thing that matters, the life of those we love. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm perfectly placed to deal with these Hollywood assholes because, you know, it doesn't make any difference to me. Oh my god! I've got to get into the Hollywood bit. I, 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 I don't know anyone. Well, I, I, when I did a TV show many years ago, like a, a, a real reality show, I dealt with a couple of TV people, mm. um, and uh, and I always found them quite intriguing as individuals. Pretty hard work, I found, um, mm. which is one of the reasons I stopped doing the reality show. Um, it is. is it, what's it really like in Hollywood? Like, tell me. Like, uh, um, I mean, I, I, I had, I had, I got became quite friends with David Hasselhoff, good friends before he came yeah. on my show. That is, and I went over there a few times because I had a, a girl that I used to take out from LA, and I used to in those days I worked for a General Electric, and I used to fly to New York once a month. It, I used to fly to Stanford in Connecticut once a month, and um, and uh, and on the way so up in LA, and I hang out with her for you know a few days and hang out with her on the way back so i got to know him because she was friends of him that's how i got to know but uh like you know he's a good guy but my god like it's uh talk about pace um you know that's a mad pace and he put up i'm not put up with this but i don't want him to listen to this i don't want him to think i had to put up with him but how, how do you uh deal with all the personalities strong personalities um egos is it really like that in hollywood oh my god where to start um yeah, Give me something. You know, well, so I, you know, I, I fired my agents a few years ago. I was with uh, WME, William Morris Endeavour, and I was baffled by what motivated agents. Um, you know, at one point they used to work great for me. They sent my stuff out and then, then they just sort of didn't. And I said to myself, what motivates an agent? And I realized that all agents in Hollywood, they just want to send their kids to the same school as Steven Spielberg. And maybe be on the PTA with Spielberg or his wife, Kate Capshaw. That's it. That, that, is, that is not a joke. That's exactly what they want. They, they literally want to hang out with Spielberg on a Friday or Saturday watching school sport. Um, somebody once said that everybody in Hollywood is, you know, they're looking for, uh, they're always looking for something better. So if they're dating you, they're really actually looking for someone better. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's the same sometimes with movies that they they're looking for, you know, a, a lead actor and they might get a lead actor, but, you know, if Leonardo DiCaprio says yes, well, we'll ditch everybody else and we'll, we'll get Leo. And what I find, and you know, this has been my thing in life, you make a decision and you stick with it. And the, the actors and talent I got for Interceptor uh, were extraordinary. Elsa Pataki is amazing. An Australian actor named Luke Bracey played my villain. And he's going to be a superstar. Um, a, a guy who played one of the minor roles, Aaron Glenane, is extraordinarily talented. He was so good that the, the crew formed a line for him on his last day as he left the set. And wow. that, that was, you know, I heard stories on my set of, you know, directors being just awful human beings and... There's no reason for that, but that definitely happens in Hollywood. You get you get people who throw their weight around. Um, you know, I've had people make comments on the movie and they expect their comments to be affected uh, and done. Um, uh, what they don't realise with me is that I don't care. I, I honestly don't care uh, for their uh, alleged status. Did you stay faithful in the directing of the movie, faithful to everything you had written prior to this, or did you do you have to make some adjustments in no. the movie? You got to make adjustments. Even in pre-production, yeah. they said, "Listen, we can't afford this scene. We had a fight on a helipad." They said, "We can't afford to build the helipad. You have to do the fight somewhere else." 
And I said, okay. And uh, so that's the joy of being a writer and a director. You can rewrite it. Oh, yeah. You've, you've got to roll with the punches, but all I needed was the chance to direct one movie and do it well. And as all through Interceptor, all I needed to do was do this movie really well because directing is so hard and it's so hard to get that first chance that if I could do this well, they'd let me do it again. And, and Netflix have already audience tested the movie and it tested really, really well. So they gave us more money to make the effects better. So I think my chances of doing it again, fingers crossed, are good. But so yeah, I had to roll with the punches and get it made. I, at the risk of rambling, the most stressful period was the last four days because we'd been shooting for over a month and you've got your schedule set and I had all these major fights to be fought in the last four days. And if the weather changed or if we got behind, I wasn't going to finish them. And I had no more time. And I was literally winding them up on the set going, move, move, move. We've got to go, go, go. We've got to get this done. Um, because I, you, can't have, you can't cut together half a movie. Or, you know, you need those finishing fights. So that was where it got stressful. I don't want to ask you the awkward question, but, I mean, I guess it, it is. <laughs> like you, you can. They give you a budget, I presume. Um, Netflix yeah, yeah. say, well, hey, hey, Matt, this is all we're going to spend, blah. Um, yep. Who sits down and how do you work out how you spread that budget across the whole yeah. show, the whole movie? So so you, 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 I'm the director and the writer. So the director is sort of the creative uh, control of the story. Your producers are the ones who map out the budget and they also bring in the first assistant director. And the first assistant director should have a better name because they do much more than that. They are not your assistant. They do the schedule. I had a wonderful guy named Bob Donaldson who'd been working for, who's been working for years. He gets the budget. He does the schedule. And so, yeah, you you have this narrowing timeline of Days running out, money running out, and you want them to hit right on the last. <laughs> I mean, we so we shoot, we shot this in what April and May, and now here I am in December. Um, the shoot is this manic, exciting, really fun period. Our biggest budget item is visual effects, computer graphics. You know, I've got nuclear missiles being intercepted in the sky, which I've never seen in a movie before. And again, I'm still working on those uh, as we speak. I've got a meeting this afternoon online to do them. So we're still we're still actually, the days are running out till I deliver in February and the money's running out too. And hopefully, boom, right on that last day, get zero. My, my producer said to me, don't leave any money in the bank. We've got this budget. Spend it all right Spend to the last the day. Yeah. So I, I, I got to ask you this question because I reckon this sounds this would be cool. Um, in terms of um, choosing the talent, I guess you have someone who does that, but I mean, you must have some say in it or yeah. at least participation in it. Um, um, yeah. Elsa Pataki, um, being Chris Hemsworth's um, partner uh, in life, uh, did you choose? Did you try and choose Australians or people with Australian links if you could? Um, all of our cast. Uh, we're Australian. Uh, no, we we the script obviously goes to actresses, uh, some in Hollywood, some in England, and the script found its way to Mark Morrissey, Elsa and Chris's Australian manager, and he turned out to be a fan of my books. So he sees Matthew Riley, or oh, script for Matthew Riley, and he's directing it. And again, brings us full circle to bonkers, fast, crazy action. And he knew that Elsa wanted to get back into movies and do an action movie. And she, she wanted to do something for her daughter uh, to see that women could do action. And here's me with this story, which is basically Die Hard with a Woman with Interceptor Missiles in it. And so when Elsa wanted to do it, um, again, I was stoked. And uh, between us, she she looks ripped. She got... She hit the gym. She looks like Linda Hamilton in Terminator 2 uh, in this movie. Um, you want to see someone do pull-ups. Oh, my God. Um, for the villain, for Luke Bracey, he was one of three actors that Netflix asked us to look at. So I looked at him and two others. 
and he was phenomenal. Uh, turned out he'd also read my books when he was younger. So the books help in a big way. And for the other roles, you'd be amazed. You know, I you get sent audition tapes. They're reading the lines from the, the script. And very often the, the best candidate just leapt out straight away. You, you could see the ones who, who got it um, and they sort of, you know, they won the role fair and square. But you might watch 25, 30 tapes for those, maybe more. I reckon you're going to get a whole heap of agents uh, in, in Hollywood now coming along to uh, you, hoping that they're, they're going to be um, at your kids' school soccer on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon, a bit like you talked about Spielberg before. You're going to get a flood yeah. of agents coming towards you say, what's next, Matt? What's next, Matt? By the way, it was all filmed. We filmed it in Sydney. We filmed it in our filmed in Sydney. In the sound <laughs> yep, stages uh, at the old ABC studios. Yeah. Oh, wow. George oh, Miller cool. was in there before George Miller moved out and we moved in. So yeah. What what was George doing there? He was doing Three Thousand Years of Longing. Uh which oh, right. he's just fin- he's finishing that now before he does uh Furiosa. Oh cool. He he's my neighbor. He's a really cool guy. He's an, he's a really good guy. He um, is he is an amazing guy. And he was yeah. a guy he was an influence on me. You know, the Mad Max films, especially not so much the first one, which was amazing, but the second one, Mad Max Two. That was thirty years ahead of its time. He he's stunning. He's had and obviously went off and did Babe and Happy Feet, Witches of Eastwick, stuff like that. But that second Mad Max movie, that was, you know, basically it's like the Lord of the Rings. It was the first and the best of its genre. He he is stunningly good. It's interesting. He's such a unassuming person. Like. Like I've sometimes seen him down the shop or just buy at the fish shop in Rose Bay or something like that, buying yeah. fish from we're both, you know, his Greek background as, as I'm. We go to this same Greek fish shop down there in Rose Bay, the Costis, and, uh, and they have a photograph of him up there on their wall. And uh, he's just like a, a dude, like just a normal person. Like I'm not saying he shouldn't be, nor, nor should I say that you shouldn't be. But then I th- step back and I think, my God, like as you said, Mad Max, what an imagination this guy must have. And uh, like crazy, that the the sheer originality of Mad Max Two is mind blowing, and he, what he did with Fury Road was basically did Mad Max Two, but he had you know 180 million dollars to do it. Uh, yeah. Now he he hey if you see him uh, around the neighbourhood, tell him Matthew Riley is a huge fan and owes him a debt of gratitude for the inspiration. I think when I was very young, when I self published Contest. I, I sent a copy to his offices in uh, in uh, where is he? He's in um, Kings Cross near Maclay Street in that old uh, Art Deco theatre. Uh, never heard back from him, but you know, if he ever wants to do any of the books, you know, let him know. He's great. There's a, there's a big controversy now, by the way, about that theatre at the moment in Potts yeah? Point or King, back at Kings Cross. Yeah, they're trying to some developers are trying to tear it down. In fact, I th- I think I saw him up there talking about it, saying why well, it shouldn't be torn down. Uh, and it, it, I, I quickly wanted to ask you, is there a correlation, because you, you just said something about his budget, $180 million. Um, is there a correlation with how um, hectic a movie can turn out to be in your genre? Is, that, is there a direct correlation or, or, or are you always juggling with this? No, no, it's, it's a good question. I think the more money involved, the more nervous the studio gets. So they really want to make sure someone like George Miller's got a history of, you know, managing big budget movies. For my movie with a, a budget of less than $20 million, I get less interference from the studio because it's not, it's not going to break the bank if it fails. But if, you know, if Mad Max Fury Road doesn't succeed, you know, somebody at the studio, many people are going to get fired. So, yeah, um. You, I, I met a filmmaker here who did a, um, he did a superhero movie you know, 15 years ago and he hated it and now he makes $14 million movies because he doesn't get that nervous interference from the studio. So, yeah, if you want to make big-budget movies, and let's be honest, that's where I want to go next, um, you, have to, you have to have your stuff together and... And you say George is a very unassuming guy. Um, so am I. Somebody described me recently. I look like I look like a boyish accountant rather than a Hollywood movie director. 
Well, but you could maybe, have been a lawyer. Could have been a lawyer. But, you know, maybe you need you need that that organizational skill of the law degree uh, to manage the hundreds of people and the money and also tell a really fun and interesting story. And that's why I've got all this stuff around me um, because in the end you have to have all the organizational skills. You could have all the organizational skills in the world, but if you're not telling something fun, if you're not giving people joy, then they're going to turn off your show like you do after three minutes. That just reminded me too. One of the things that I think, you know, George Miller uh, is a great example of, and the nicest compliment I got after Interceptor, after the shoot, Chris and Elsa invited me to the Thor set. I'm going to do a big name drop here, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I get introduced cool. to Matt Damon is on the set. Oh. And you know Matt Damon and his wife Lucy, they're very close with Chris and Elsa. And, and Lucy and Elsa are thick as thieves. And Matt Damon's there and they introduce me to him. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's Matt Damon. And they go, Matt, this is Matt Riley. He directed Elsa's movie. And he immediately goes, no way. Elsa couldn't stop talking about that. She had so much fun making that movie. And that, if Matt Damon's out there telling his friends in Hollywood that if you work on a Matthew Riley movie, you'll not only make something fun and entertaining, but you'll have a good time doing it. That's the reputation I want as a director. And I think you could say George Miller has that reputation. People, you know, leap at the chance to work with him. That's what you want. That's the next step for me. And so, again, he's a really good role model for me. That, that um, having a vision of your own evolution is pretty cool. I, I want to go back to Interceptor. So, like, what date yeah. are we going to look forward to seeing this on uh, Netflix? Because so, I'm going to be watching. When is it? Netflix have said to me it's going to be around the start of April next year. Start of April next year, yeah. yeah. And uh, what do you think? I mean, obviously, you're are you getting rebooked for another show, another movie, or a follow through? Can you give me something? Yeah, no, no. I'm I'm very keen to sort of set up the next one. So I I had a chat with Netflix about a couple of other projects I've got, uh, including a sequel to Interceptor. Uh, but uh, what they do, and they did this, uh, Warner Brothers did this with Dune recently, is they are still going to wait to see how Interceptor does. Uh, you're still confident as they might be, uh, they still want to wait and see. So this is why before we jumped on this call, I was tapping away on my next book because I have to do something between now and April. I'm not going to sit in my hands and twiddle my thumbs. So i writing my next book. I got three scripts on my desk here, ready to go. So, if Interceptor pops, I'm ready to run. Ready to run. And will Elsa Pataki uh, pick up her um, iPhone or whatever it is um, at some stage, right at the end, towards the end, and uh, sort of fade away to a screen that sort of indicates to us, uh, "Don't give too much away." I know you can't, but fade away. To, or will somebody, maybe not but Elsa, but or the heroine, uh, but it will somebody uh, fade away to a screen and sort of uh, use that device you're talking about before that uh, was shown? I can't, I can't remember. You've downloaded me with so much stuff, I can't remember what it was. Uh, will that happen? Are you going to set us up for something else? I hope so. The the, the Marvel style. Uptick That's in it. the credits. Yep. Yeah. Maybe. Call it an uptick, call it a setup. I love it. I, I, yeah, I might have done something uh, along those lines. And uh, I reckon you've watched a few sequels in your day, or I reckon you've watched a few setups or upticks for sequels in your day. It looks like yeah. everything you have been a, a student of um, yeah. has had a sequel and a sequel and a sequel yeah. and another sequel. Yeah. That, that's a very good observation. Yeah. Look at Spielberg. Spielberg directed all the Indiana Jones movies too. He directed the sequels right. up until now. Uh, Jim Mangold's making the um, the latest one. That that little bit of Samuel L. Jackson at the end of Infinity War, showing him getting the beeper with the Captain Marvel symbol on it, made Disney a billion dollars. It wow. The, the Captain Marvel movie came out a few months later. It is, I think it's fair to say, it's not regarded as one of the best Marvel movies made. It's it's adequate. It's very, very good. Solid, but it's not the best. It made a billion dollars at wow. the box office. And that's then, you know, you mad. get all the, that's that's a, That's worth, you know, a one-minute uptick at the end of your Infinity War credits. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to wrap, but I'm going to have to let you go too, but I, I, in the interest of time. But just one final question. Um, you talked earlier about agents and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I, I remember watching on, I think it was uh, Netflix, 
a series called Ray Donovan, and uh, Ray Donovan was a um, a guy who's like a manager of Hollywood stars, and it gets a bit dark towards the end. I, I just couldn't get, get keep my eyes off it. It was such such a great series for me. It was a it was a, a TV series. Yeah, I know. nothing like what you're doing. Are there such people as Ray Donovans in Hollywood? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> there are fixers. I have met yeah, fixers. Hollywood fixers. Um, That's mad. Yeah. Um, and I, I think uh, probably increasingly you're going to see fixers uh, are actually people fixing social media faux pas or stuff like that. But, yes, they do exist. That's an interesting thing about the faux pas on um, on digital socials and etc. That's probably right too. Um, well, I, Matthew Riley, I'm I really enjoy this conversation. Like, it's, it's totally energised me. Um, I want to congratulate you on what you've done. I'm super excited to watch your Netflix movie coming out in April next year, Interceptor. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, and what's so cool is that uh, it's a boy from uh, Allos in Sydney. Who's made good in the biggest stage of the world? That's Hollywood. So well done, congratulations, and thanks for being Australian. Thanks for representing us so well. And uh, I've had a ball talking to you, mate. I I love not only love making movies, but it's even more fun when you bring Netflix's American money and spend it in Australia on the the best cruise in the world. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been very enjoyable. You're most welcome. Thanks for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.